0: The rest of you will want to get out your uh, sermon outline. It says the fall of Babylon. Uh, Obviously, my voice hasn't completely recovered yet. uh, So I trust that you will bear with me. We are in Revelation chapter 18. And it's a uh, very long chapter. It's actually a song... Uh, We see a number of the verses there, it's written in poetic form, and uh, it's really a song about chapter 17 and 19. So it comes in here, and it's a song about the uh, judgment of God upon Babylon. And so we are uh, working our way uh, rapidly through the book of Revelation, we started last September, and uh, we're already up to chapter 18, so... Um, We'll go through the summer. Um, Because it's so long, I'm going to read it in chunks as we go through it. So let's go ahead and open with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this poetic vision of evil and judgment in the world, the cries of the martyrs, the commands of Jesus, overwhelm us as you overwhelm John. Remind us of what this is all about. Help us to see that Jesus is judge as well as Savior and teach us to rejoice in his justice as much as we rejoice in his mercy. Do this for each of us this morning. In the powerful name of Jesus we pray, amen. Now if Revelation 17 exposed the abominations of Babylon as our Arrington showed us last week, Then Revelation 18 announces her imminent destruction. Much of the language here is drawn from Old Testament passages that predict the destruction of historic Babylon or some other pagan city characterized by corruption, violence, and idolatry. And it's worth remembering that although Rome um, faced several uh, major reverses uh, during the ensuing 300 years after this was written, It's not until the time of of, uh, St. Augustine that the city was thoroughly sacked by the barbarians from the north. So much of the description of this chapter actually came to a quite brutal fulfillment uh, for Rome. But by that time, 300 years later, Christianity had itself become the state religion. (coughs) And so many Christians found the sacking of Rome difficult to accept and harder to explain. They no longer saw Rome as Babylon, which certainly the seven churches to whom this book was written would have seen the Roman Empire as Babylon, full of evil. And so we're gonna talk about that, and it was Augustine who actually wrote a book about the sacking of Rome, and he placed it in a theological context to help Christians make sense of it all. That volume is The City of God, is the name of the book. It was originally written in 22 volumes. And in it, he traces out two cities, the city of God and the city of man. And he goes all the way back to Genesis and the beginning of two humanities, two cities, the city of God and the city of man, and develops this contrast uh, as it grows in various ways throughout the Bible, and he traces that, all the way into the book of Revelation, where we find the contrast between Babylon and the New Jerusalem. And basically, what Augustine says is empirically, believers find they're citizens of both Babylon and the New Jerusalem. But in terms of our allegiance, we belong to one or the other. And for Augustine, those became controlling categories for him not only for his rapid scan of biblical history, although I'm not sure you could call 22 volumes rapid, uh, but primarily for his analysis of good and evil within history. And his book, The City of God, which you can now get in one volume, um, is considered one of the great literary masterpieces, deserves close reading today. And if you don't think you're ready to take on Augustine, James Montgomery Boyce did a Uh, modern, updated English version that's uh, much easier to read. Um, But Augustine warns us against associating the church and the gospel too closely with the cities and the kingdoms of this world. Cities that he says are all temporal and temporary, and they're slated for destruction, and they're hopelessly compromised. And by contrast, Christians should identify themselves with the new Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the Jerusalem that is above, whose builder and maker is God. And getting these things right is neither easy or simple. And we'll read in today's passage in verse 4, come out of her my people. And in the context of the book of Revelation, this is a compelling exhortation from Jesus himself not to align with any of Babylon's corroding uh, riches and perverted values. One must come out and leave this doomed city which stands under the judgment of God Almighty. And if some enjoy Babylon so much that they will end up being destroyed with her, And yet there's others who expect to build their own center, their own city, removed from Babylon's influence. And yet without perceiving that until Jesus returns, the people of God are constantly being tugged in two different directions, by the city of man and the city of God. And our ultimate hope is in God himself, who not only introduces the new Jerusalem when we get to chapter 21, but who will bring down Babylon in his own sovereign judgment. And so with that that's the tension we need to keep in mind as we go into this, that we're living in the city of man as citizens of the city of God. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what Revelation 18 tells us about the fate of Babylon, which serves as a representative of the city of man. And while this scene is described for us, this is not something we're given to see, as much as something we're given to hear. And Remember, in, Be- in uh, the book of Revelation, some of the things we're told to look and see, and other things we're told to stop and hear or listen to. And uh, this is one of those where the apostle John sees an angel, but he doesn't see this scene. He hears it. It's not shown to him. And so we have to be good listeners in this chapter. And we start right at the beginning, verse 1, with the voice of condemnation. The voice of condemnation. In chapter 17, we were given a brief account of the fall of Babylon, the great city of man, the anti-Christian world order that is, in fact, the creation of Satan and his agents, the beast and the false prophet. And the angel in Revelation 17 promised John that he would show him the punishment of the great prostitute, which is a way of referring to Babylon. And in chapter 18, we have what the Old Testament would call an oracle against Babylon. Indeed, if you compare them, you'll immediately see that Revelation 18 is dependent upon every one of the oracles against Babylon and Isaiah and Jeremiah. So I know there's a, a few fans of the prophets here. And uh, so uh, this chapter is particularly dependent upon the prophets and also Ezekiel's uh, oracle against the city of Tyre. Have you gotten to that yet in Sunday school? Are you there? Okay, so you guys all understand that. Uh, those are in Rich's class. And what we have here is in a manner very typical of Old Testament prophets, is a combination of prophecy and lamentation or lament. And in one verse, thanksgiving. But it's all about the final destruction of Babylon. Now, I realize some of you may be struggling with week after week after week of revelation. And if you want some sympathy, I can only say I've never read more in preparation for a sermon series than I have for the book of Revelation. You know, it's hard, we all find it, uh, John's vision's hard to fathom and hard to understand. And it can be discouraging to read chapter after chapter describing in vivid imagery the judgment of the world and the doom that will overtake the unbelieving world. But uh, brothers and sisters, take courage. We are nearing the end of the book. And the final four chapters, 19 through 22, are the clearest and the happiest chapters of them all. Uh, So we're almost there. But first, we have to get to chapter 18. So turn with me to verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." John is suddenly on the earth in his vision because he sees an angel coming down from heaven, and this angel radiates the glory of God. So one commentator, I think, uh, beautifully puts it, so recently has this angel come from the presence of God that in passing he flings a broad belt of light across the dark earth. And we uh, see here the uh, this scene of man's proudest achievements. Babylon is reduced to a dark ruin inhabited by demons and birds of prey. And the lament describes Babylon as already fallen, even though clearly in the context, her final destruction is something that's being predicted and remains in the future, as the chapter will make clear. But this past tense emphasizes the certainty of the prophecy, so certain it can be spoken of as already happened. of course, we see the Apostle Paul do that in Romans eight and other places. He's so sure something is going to happen uh, because of the promises of God, he speaks of it as already happening. Um, And the reason for her fall, Babylon's fall, again, as we saw in chapter 17, is just utter moral and spiritual depravity. Babylon gave herself to the beast and his rebellion against God and now it's time to pay the price. And the fact that Babylon's fall is described in this chapter in terms that are drawn from the Old Testament descriptions of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and Nineveh and Babylon and Tyre and Jerusalem indicates again that all of John's references to the Roman world and its government and its economic life refer not just to one particular empire and its rise and fall, but to the satanic world system as it's expressed in political, economic, and religious systems throughout history. In that sense, Sodom and Gomorrah were Babylon, and Rome was Babylon. And in that sense, there's been Babylons in the world uh, ever since. And there will be a Babylon at the very end. And the concluding phrase of this chapter, which we'll see at the very end, of all who've been slain on the earth, further generalizes the description of Babylon's fall. We're not talking about the end of the Roman Empire, but we're talking about the end of the world and the destruction of that form of Babylon that at that time, at the end of history, rules the world at Satan's command. Now, it's fair to say there's actually very little here in chapter 18 that we haven't already heard from time to time in the whole book of Revelation. And Christians are to take comfort from the fact that their faith in Jesus Christ will be vindicated, and the day is coming that those who suffered greatly uh, for their faith will be rewarded. And the great motive for faithful Christian living in a hostile world, at least in the revelation of St. John, is that such faithfulness and loyalty to Christ will not go unrewarded. In due time, it's going to be made clear, no matter what mistreatment the saints have suffered for their loyalty to Christ, uh, their persecutors are going to be judged, and they themselves are going to be rewarded. And the message is to hang on, hold on, hold fast, and you'll be very, very glad you did when that day comes. But if you're going to hang on and hold fast, Jesus has a very specific command for you, a command that will enable you to persevere. And so we hear, starting in verse 4, the voice of separation. The voice of separation. Beginning at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now it's important for any right understanding of Revelation always to remember that it was written for Christians. The entire book, not just the first few chapters, was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is to say the Revelation was written to the Christian church, which is to say it was written to us. And it's not uncommon for a reader of Revelation to think this great message of the book is chiefly written to unbelievers. After all, it's their judgment and their punishment that's being prophesied here. And surely uh, that's the main thing. Time after time, the judgment of the unbelieving world is described in vivid and dramatic ways. Surely, this is a solemn warning to unbelievers. This is what will happen to you if you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and follow him. And no doubt that's true. But remember, there is much of the same kind of writing in the Old Testament, from the Old Testament prophets, uh, oracles against all the pagan nations who are enemies of the people of God. And those oracles, just like John's here in Revelation and here in chapter 18, were preached not to those nations, but to the people of God. They were written about uh, Philistia or Assyria or Babylon, but they were written for Israel. And so here we're reading judgments about Babylon, but it's written to the church. And the first command for us here in this chapter, there's two commands. The first one comes out of the prophecy of Babylon's destruction. We find this in verse 4. Come out of her, my people. The revelation of Babylon's sin, of the inevitable failure of her rebellion against God, of her punishment, should keep Christians from being seduced by her flattery or her temptations and make them very wary of getting uh, ensnared in Babylon's culture, careful not to touch her in ways that her own hands would get stained. This too is a theme we've seen throughout the book. This is a concern with a number of the seven churches to avoid entanglement with the pagan culture so as not to be seduced and compromised by that culture. Remember, several of the churches, they were saying, you tolerate this idolatry. You tolerate this immorality. You're taking part in it. And you need to stop or God's going to come against you. And that's what we're seeing here as well. And one of his prophecies against Babylon, Jeremiah, says something very similar in Jeremiah 51. He says, go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Now, in neither case, either in Revelation or Jeremiah, are the followers of Christ physically to withdraw from the rest of the world. We're not supposed to go all go join the monastery or the convent. We're not supposed to uh, necessarily become part of an Amish sect or something like that. I mean, after all, the Jews in Babylon in Jeremiah's day, they couldn't do this anyways. Slaves in a foreign land, they weren't free to leave Babylon any more that many Christians at the end of the first century were free to flee the Roman world. They couldn't do it and they didn't know where to go if they could. Many of them were slaves. They had to remain where they were. Rather, they are being commanded and we are being commanded to separate ourselves from the world in the sense of not compromising uh, with its unbelieving program the sense of remaining faithful to Christ and his kingdom, giving our allegiance to Jesus and not giving our allegiance to Babylon, to Rome, to the culture, the society of the world in which we live. And, of course, the purpose for this separation for coming out is, is given to us there in verse 4. Lest you part in her, or take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues... You need to separate yourself from the spiritual life, the spiritual program, the ideology, theology, and ethics of Babylon. Now, in a wonderfully practical passage in 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul explains the Christians can't help associating with the people of the world. Uh, If the sort of separation the Bible requires meant physically separating ourselves from unbelievers, we'd have to leave the world, not just Babylon, Besides, Paul spent his entire life among non Christians, seeking to win them to Christ, bring them to salvation. He read Babylon's books, toured her cities, made use of her laws, even appealed to her government with help in more than one uh, instance. And what Paul meant when he told us to be separate from the world is that we're not supposed to make the sort of spiritual alliances with the world that will undermine our loyalty to Christ that will destroy our witness to the truth. Paul is not worried about Christians getting into the world. Paul was worried about the world getting into Christians. Big difference. And we can see that, just look around today. The world has gotten into so many churches that they're not even Christian anymore, though they may still be Presbyterian. If you ask, I mean, why do churches go bad? How do they lose their way? Why are there so many Christian churches in great number in Europe and the United States and Canada that once stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ and now spout smooth, lifeless, toothless slogans to empty sanctuaries? Why do these churches no longer interest their own children? Why do these churches never witness the revolutionary impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ on people's lives? The answer is this. In virtually every case, they refused to come out of the world. They got yoked with the world. They got put into a double harness with unbelief. And they weakened, blurred, smudged, and obliterated that bright line that distinguishes uh, faith from unbelief, wickedness from righteousness, darkness from light, God from idols. And by refusing to keep uh, this distinction, this antithesis between Babylon and the new Jerusalem, by refusing to keep the distinction between the two kingdoms, by refusing to live out that distinction, they lost that distinction altogether, and they became part of Babylon, and they don't even know it. There are legions of such churches in our land, in our world, and sad to say, there's a large number of Presbyterian churches among them. I'll give you an example. I was recently in a church Uh, And I'm sure it was once a faithful church that loved Christ and believed the scriptures. But today it has strayed far from the truth. I picked up some sermons from that church. I'm not going to identify it. But here are some of the things that were preached here. I put these in in your outline. that were preached in April, just a month ago. And this is in our area. This is the quote from the Easter sermon. The resurrection isn't so much about Jesus raising our bodies from the earth or sea in the future, but rather raising us up now. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Here's from the Good Friday sermon. The proof of the resurrection is not the empty tomb. It's a spirit-filled community. Now, a spirit-filled community is good, but it doesn't prove the resurrection. I doubt it would have convinced Peter and Mary. What did convince them? Luke 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of our Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And then from the... This is actually from the Palm Sunday sermon. We don't follow Jesus or bear the cross in order to be crucified, but in order to live and love fully without fear. Now, living without fear is good. But Paul says, Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a lot more quotes like that. And these things that are being said, these are things, unbiblical things, things of Babylon that are being preached in churches this morning, some of whom have the word Presbyterian in their names. And it would be, the most ridiculous conclusion for any of us to make that this church right here might not do exactly the same thing in exactly the same way given enough time if we don't come out of Babylon. And such churches are useless. They have become enemies rather than the advocates of the gospel. And at one time, it was the furthest thing from their mind that they would ever betray the gospel of Jesus Christ or fail to proclaim Jesus Christ as the savior of sinners. But in the end, when push came to shove, they liked living in Babylon, and they couldn't leave. Many of Babylon's most beautiful churches were once Christian churches, (coughs) <coughs> when Christians merge with Babylon <coughs> Babylon does not become Christian. Christians become Babylon and they will be judged just as Babylon is judged. And because that has to happen we hear the voices of lamentation verses 9 through 19. The voices of lamentation. If you don't know how to spell that, it's actually the name of a book in the Bible, the Old Testament. You can look it up in the index. Babylon's going to be judged quite simply because there's a just God in heaven. John shows this to us by identifying the volume of Babylon's sins back in verse 5. How is Babylon described? For her sins are heaped high as heaven. How would you like that to be your description? So you know, we'll put that on your tombstone. For her sins are as heaped high as heaven. You know, just not kind of what I'm envisioning to be put on mine. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you uh, have placed your faith in him, then your sins are forgiven, and God says, I will remember them no more. But what does he say about Babylon? Verse 5. And God has remembered her iniquities. One commentator writes, the sky-high compost pillar of her sins has not escaped God's notice. I love that word picture. The sky-high compost pillar. What's a compost pile? It's where you throw all the trash and the leftovers and the waste from the yard and all that, and it just rots and decays. It's a bunch of dead, dying stuff. And it stinks, you know. And it reaches as high as heaven. You know, how often have we heard people complain about individuals, regimes, or terrorist groups, nations getting away with atrocities? You say, well, why doesn't God do something about that? You know, people will be very indignant about that, if not outright skeptical. And John is letting us know here that all the exploitation and immorality and perversion and destruction and terrorism and murder and persecution that's been carried out uh, in Babylon is not forgotten in heaven. God has remembered her iniquities. And for God to remember is tantamount to saying that God is going to act justly. And so he does. He acts justly. He judges Babylon. Now, in this section, John records the lament over Babylon's fall by various groups of people who cooperated with her for profit, and they now suffer loss because of her fall. We hear from the rulers of the earth, the kings of the earth, and the merchants, and then the seafarers and shipmasters, and they all shared in Babylon's wealth by carrying goods to and from. And Rome's uh, great wealth was built on trade. That trade crossed the sea in ships, and I think it's very interesting if you go back to Ezekiel 27 and read there, again, a reminder that Revelation 18 depends on the Old Testament prophets. Those same groups are lamenting the demise, the fall of the city of Tyre. And they name the rulers and the merchants and the seafarers there. So John has reached back to the Old Testament and says the situation hasn't changed. Now, these laments aren't expressing sorrow over the catastrophe. They're not sad that Babylon's fallen. They're weeping for their own loss. They got rich off of Babylon, and now they're not going to be rich anymore. There's nobody to trade with. There's nothing to put in their ships. Their cooperation with Babylon made them rich, and Babylon's judgment has become their judgment. Now, it's a very long passage. I encourage you to read it, but let me just pick out a few things I'm not going to read the whole thing now. It says uh, in verse 9 and 11 that they will weep and wail for her. In verse 11, they will weep and mourn for her. It's a description of everything that they've lost. And then verses 11 through 13 is a description of all the stuff they brought into Babylon or that they brought into Rome or any great city of the world. But look at the very end of verse 13. The last item of cargo. Slaves, that is human souls. And they're right in there with the wheat and the flour and the cattle and the cinnamon and the wood and the bronze. There's just one more item to check off your list. Oh yeah, people too. That's what's going on in Babylon. It's going on today. This long paragraph describes the mourning of the merchants as they see Babylon go up in smoke and their wealth is destroyed. And it's an image of this prosperous ancient city visited by many ships, and the wealth of the city provides for many nations, employs many people. Not only do the kings of the earth lament the fall of Babylon, but the merchants and the shipmasters. And business and government are so intertwined that what affects one affects the other. And certainly the city of Rome was a city of uh, world trade and government, it was known for its extravagance and luxury. And the people in the empire are dependent upon Rome. If you think about it, you just transfer that to today. The complex connections that exist between government and business today. Any business, any government, at any level. And with our interrelated computer systems, there's more than one tech guy in here, uh, it's not going to take long for Babylon to collapse and the world's economic system to be destroyed. We just had a small taste of that in the last few years. You know, recently a trader on Wall Street typed an extra zero in his order and the Dow Jones dropped 1,000 points. That translates to millions of dollars of lost wealth. Oops. I have a feeling he's not doing much trading anymore. It's just a guess. But the words here, translated weep and wail, really mean this sort of very loud lamentation. It's not silent crying, this is the tearing of your clothes and screaming out loud. And again, they're not feeling sorry for the city, they've lost customers. God brought an end to their life of wealth. And we have the inventory of all the commodities they brought, uh, costly garments, imported foods. And that hasn't changed. Every great city in the world today would starve, were it not for the trucks and trains that bring in fresh produce and meat on a daily basis. You know, last I checked, not a lot of cattle ranches in New York City. Not a lot of dairy farms in Manhattan. All that stuff gets brought in every single day. The last, the most disturbing is the slaves, verse 13. It was estimated that one-third of Rome's population was enslaved. It was not unusual for the slave markets for 10,000 people to be auctioned off in a single day. It's been estimated that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, People who are treated like furniture, bought and sold, used and abused. Now, perhaps we don't have the same kind of slavery. There is a slavery in our world today. There's quite a bit of it, not to the extent of Rome, but there is. it's there, it's going on, and we should be utterly opposed to it. But even if you think in our world, northern Virginia... Think of, you know, some of our favorite things. Sports teams. I should probably hide this. Um, Wore this for the Larson's today. You know, players are bought and sold and even traded. And if you think of our great corporations, more and more seeking to control the lives of their officers and workers, one of the great advantages of the high-tech revolution is you never leave work. You always have to be connected to the job. Always. And there's people that, you know, they, they had a news thing on the other day of people in Washington, D.C. who have never taken a vacation, ever, Can't though the job will fail if I leave. Yeah, I really don't think so. One woman hasn't had a vacation in 57 years. I just can't leave my job. I was like, that's a sad life, but that's not uncommon. People are enslaved to luxury, and with the bills that we have to pay, we find ourselves unable to break loose from our economic system. You know, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to conceive of a universal enslavement, an economic enslavement under the rule of the beast. We already saw in Revelation 13, he required his mark on everyone that would buy and sell and demanded all people to worship his image. We just didn't know that the name of that image was Visa. You know... He'll take advantage of all of our appetites and use our appetites to enslave us. He promises freedom, but puts men and women in bondage. Apostle Peter said that, 2 Peter 2, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So what's the end result of all this? Because we're wrapping up almost out of time, you know, you would think it's sorrow and mourning and sadness, sadness, and strangely enough, that's not what we're told. Actually, what we hear next is a voice of celebration. Look at verse 20. "Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her." All along, the persecution of Christians wasn't as Babylon's project. We read in chapter 17 that she was drunk with the blood of the saints, and her punishment corresponds to her crimes. And at the very end, we see the casting of a stone into the sea as an image of Babylon's destruction, a great city sinking into the sea, never to be seen again. And Jeremiah prophesied the same thing. He wrote a book um, prophesying the destruction of Babylon and instructed his assistant to take the book from Jerusalem to Babylon and to read it aloud there and then tie a rock around it and throw it into the Euphrates River. And he said, Jeremiah 51, thus shall Babylon sink, to rise no more because of the disaster I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far, the words of Jeremiah... So both in Revelation and Jeremiah, significant parts of the book written about Babylon and and judgment, but neither is written to Babylon itself. Both books are written to God's people. And it's written about our life and our future and our calling, and the judgment of the unbelieving world is merely the backdrop, but it's not the real message of Revelation. And the lament over Babylon's fall is sort of an unusual sermon preached to the church, to us. Congregation just like the ones in Smyrna and Laodicea and Ephesus and Philadelphia. And the sermon emphasizes the great theme of the book the vindication of Christian faith and Christian steadfastness or perseverance. That's the indicative of revelation. The indicative simply means what you are, what you will be. The ungodly world will be judged. Those loyal to Christ through thick and thin will be vindicated and rewarded for their faithfulness. But in a biblical sermon, we expect the indicative, what you are, to produce an imperative. That's simply a fancy word for a command or what you do. And throughout the Bible, what you are determines what you do. And here in Revelation, the things we know to be true about the future are to produce in the present a particular type of behavior in us. Our faith should lead us to a different life. And that behavior is defined for us in the second command that we get here in this chapter, verse 20. We're commanded to rejoice in the destruction of Babylon. And I read that several times, thought that seems odd. Christians should mourn over the unbelief of the world and its judgment, shouldn't we? I mean, if we're to love our neighbor, um, you know, it should create sadness in us that they don't believe and are exposed to judgment. After all, Jesus himself was sad and grieved when people who heard him didn't believe in him. So how can we be commanded to rejoice over the judgment and destruction of multitudes of people? Well the answer is it's not the death of these people that is the cause of our joy but the vindication of the justice of God and for all those who suffer terribly at the hands of unbelieving Babylon because of their faith in Jesus Now we live in a comfortable comfortable 21st century American world But we're unique What about all those desperately suffering Christians in another part of the world who are longing for the Lord's justice to be revealed? Thousands of Christians have lost their lives in our time while we live comfortably in the world. And they're martyred for no other reason than they're faithful to Jesus. They refuse to compromise their faith in Christ even when Babylon threatens them with death. And for them and their loved ones, the breaking in of God's justice will be a matter of immense relief. All Christians should rejoice at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A joy that I'm sure none of us has any experience of has ever known in this world. But with that coming also means an end to the unbelieving world and the judgment and punishment of its people. You can't have one without the other. You can't pray, come Lord Jesus, without praying that God's judgment be visited upon the world because that's what's going to happen when Christ comes again. And those of us who have mourned the blasphemy of God's name, the mockery made of his word, uh, who have despaired to see people swallow one gigantic lie after the other, surely we of all people should rejoice. In fact, we must rejoice to see terrible wrongs exposed for what they are and to finally be put right. And it's altogether good thing that truth in the end will prevail and that God's name will be hallowed throughout the world and his righteous judgment will be enforced and his people rewarded for their faithfulness. Now you may remember a few years ago uh, the names of Martin and uh, Gracia Burnham. They were two Christian missionaries in the Philippines. They were kidnapped by a Muslim terrorist group and they were held hostage for over a year. And now in the Philippines, as in other parts of the world, one incarnation of Babylon, one incarnation of the kingdom of the evil one, is a violent Muslim fundamentalism. I don't want to tar all of the Islamic world, um, but it, it is not Christian. It is of another world. And there is an aspect of it that I think is just outright satanic. And throughout history, Rome's grip, Babylon's grip, has always been religious in nature. That's why they worshipped the empire and worshipped the emperor. Christians have often been killed for just as many religious reasons as secular reasons. But in any case, the Burnhams were held captive, held hostage for over a year in the jungle in the Philippines. And then the Philippine military attacked. The terrorists responded by trying to shoot all the hostages, and then actually most of the terrorists got away. Gracia Burnham was the only, the the sole surviving hostage. The terrorists killed all the other hostages. Now, during their months in captivity, as you can imagine, they continued, uh, Martin and Gracia Burnham continued to be Christian missionaries, talking with these rebels, these terrorists, about Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel. This comes from an article in Christianity Today. Marching the Burnhams past predominantly Muslim villages in the southern Philippines, the Abu Sayyaf, that's the name of the terrorist group, came across a Christian chapel. There used to be a cross there, but we destroyed it, one of the rebels proudly told the missionaries. We hate the cross. Anytime we see a cross, we destroy it if we can. Gracia says she was never a real cross fan, So I was raised Baptist, and thinking too much of the cross seemed to be Catholic to me. But since my captivity, I have come to love the cross, and I have it everywhere. And my mind is changed because uh, those terrorists hate it so much and what it stands for. And the Burnhams tried to explain to their captors the gospel, but to no avail. One said, I don't want anybody paying for my sin. I'll do my own paying. Well, in Babylon, one can hate the cross and tear it down or dismiss it as nothing more than another religious myth. But if Jesus is the Son of God, as he is, and if Jesus made the world and gave life to every person as he did, and if Jesus suffered and died on that cross for the salvation of sinners as he did, then we cannot and we must not and we will not make peace with any view that denies or diminishes the gospel, the good news of salvation through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Babylon proudly boasts that she will do her own paying. (coughs) And she will. She will. She simply has no idea what the price is. Jesus says, come out of her, my people. That we are his people. And that come wind, come weather, no matter what, no matter how many ways, that must mean that we have to come out of Babylon so we don't share in our sins and receive her plagues. As often, Augustine gets the last word. What does it mean that we must come out of her? He wrote... We must renounce our rights as citizens of the world and flee to God on the wings of faith. It's easy to say. It's very hard to do because it takes faith and obedience. Remember that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. For those of us who need a new perspective on our world, on our life, on questions we can't answer this side of heaven, enable us to really see. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and help us to focus on Jesus. And use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you and follow you and who love Jesus no matter what. Enable us to come out of Babylon In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.